morning, we're live. This show is supported by the Bitbox O2, phenomenal hardware wallet. If you're buying Bitcoin, of course, the very next step should be taking self-custody. And I think we actually will be discussing that a little bit today because it's relevant to uh, Nick's work and the topics we'll be discussing. But um, I found the Bitbox O2 to be a very uh, easy to use, but also feature rich hardware wallet. If you're looking for something like that, go over to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. Nick, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm like I was just mentioning to you, I'm really excited for this conversation. I finished off your book uh, last week and my only, my only critique is that I wanted it to be longer. And so we'll get into the reasons uh, why that is in a sec, but for people that aren't familiar with you, maybe uh, an introduction and some background to your work and, and the book. Sure. So my former life before Bitcoin was in the investment management industry. I was uh, at a fixed income asset manager, trading treasuries and other interest rate products, uh, then gradually shifted into more of a strategy role and a research role in the fixed income world. Uh, but around the same time, I fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. This is about five years ago now. And uh, ever since then, I just kept researching Bitcoin. I wrote something about the Lightning Network called the Time Value of Bitcoin in 2018. And that really kickstarted my Bitcoin writing career and process. And, um, and then left the bond industry for good in late 2019 uh, in order to write this book, Layered Money, which is a, an exploration into the history of money, the money market specifically, and exactly how Bitcoin might become the world reserve currency because I think a lot of us in Bitcoin are very about the process of Bitcoin becoming the world reserve currency, but the process in which we get there um, is not really, it was not really well uh, explained, I think, um, at that point. So my, that was my goal with layered money. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but just, uh, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is I think a lot of people are confronting this right now where Bitcoin is this black hole, you know, with this gravity pulling everybody in and everyone's finding their way kind of how it speaks to them and how they want to try to engage it and articulate uh, their interest in it. Was it difficult for you to leave uh, your, you know, your profession in order to commit fully to the book? Was that a tough decision? Very tough. Um, and there was... I mean, really quite some time before um, I felt peace about it because when I was writing the book um, and then especially during the pandemic, I was actually looking for work at the same time as writing this book. And so it was a nerve wracking 2020 for me and my family, uh, to be honest. And, um, but once the book came out um, and then I started to get other private writing and consulting gigs uh, around the same time. And, you know, now I'm feeling great about it and very blessed and very thankful, uh, but it wasn't an easy decision. And, um, you know, I battled with a little bit of regret even at the beginning um, with without income. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can appreciate why. And I think, again, that's something that a lot of people are going to be confronting. And I think what one of the blessings of Bitcoin is that there's very few things in your life, I think for the hardcore Bitcoiners that you're so convicted about, you know, you, you see it and, you know, you're just kind of all in. And so 
it makes those decisions, I think, probably easier than when you've confronted them in the past, but still doesn't make them easy, right? And the fact that you, well, let me ask you this, what was it that give, gave you faith in your ability to write the book, but also the subject matter, the, the interest that the public would have in the subject matter of the book that allowed you to make such a, you know, a big commitment like that? Well, I, you know, I believe in myself and my thought process during the time, especially after the time value of Bitcoin was embraced uh, to a great extent by the Bitcoin community in 2018 and my ideas around the Lightning Network and interest rates on Bitcoin and how important that was. Um, I just, I just believed that I could write something great about Bitcoin and I, in order to do that, I had to expose the current system for exactly what it was. And so I had to understand it better than I had ever understood it before. And that was my profession. And still the vast majority of the research for the book was on the traditional system and, and on history because the Bitcoin part was almost easy for me to write. Uh, that thesis had been already developed in my mind. And in order to explain it, I had to really go back into the past. And so I guess to answer your question, um, I, I thought that I could write a book that nobody had written before. And um, it gave me the belief that, you know, I want to go out and do this. Tell me about um, the writing process. Because I think any of us who have ever written anything really, but particularly something as complex and, and potentially nuanced as this subject matter, uh, it can be a, a, a challenging and an uncomfortable process. What was it like for you? Like, did you have to set, you know, specific parameters for your writing time and you know, what was the process like? Yeah, so it starts with uh, something that one of my favorite authors, Jim Rickards said, and interestingly, he has me blocked on Twitter now <laughs> um, because I'm not even really sure. He's, he actually blocked a bunch of Bitcoiners, but- um, Bitcoin's not supposed to have a bond market, Nick. We'll get into that later. <laughs> uh, so, but, but, Jim Rickards wrote a book called Currency Wars that really um, kickstarted a lot of my research back in 2010 in the QE, uh, beginning of QE era. And Jim Rickards said that great writing starts with good reading. And so the, the writing process for me didn't even, I, I decided that I'm gonna write the book and then I just read for you know three, four, five months. And it was books, research papers, and it was a bunch of European history, you know, to be honest. And uh, before I got to the American history part of it. Um, and so it was just uh, at basically every night um, for, for several hours reading in bed, um, you know, on my iPad and uh, going through this and just developing the, the narrative. I had to figure out when I needed to start the story and arrived at the year 1252 and the gold florin, you know, only after months of research. And, um, you know, the story, developing the story uh, was all done really up here and wh while I was reading. Um, then when I, you know, go ahead, were you gonna say well, something? I, I was just gonna say, that's a really interesting point. Like finding the insertion point for your narrative, right? Because I mean, if you're 
addressing something like money and financial systems, I mean, you could start anywhere, really. Right, right. And, and so how, how was it you came to pick the point you did and, and, and why? Yeah, it, it was reading a book that was a you know, huge part of this research, early research process called The Economy of Renaissance Florence. And when I read that book, I realized that the gold florin coin which was first struck in 1252 was the beginning of this uh, credit money system that we have today because coins you know existed and we can go back tens of thousands of years and talk about money but our layered money system our hierarchy of money with balance sheets started when a credit system evolved around the florin because the florin was this um, you know world reserve currency at the time and it was really one paragraph john it was it was this paragraph that said the florin came to be used as you know in high uh quantity administrative salaries in international commerce in the settlement of debts and it just reminded me of bitcoin's future and how we're going to get there and the monetization of bitcoin as a world reserve currency and so i decided to write the book as uh, the Renaissance of Money. That was the working title that I decided because the Florence was a Renaissance coin. The double entry accounting was a Renaissance development. Uh, the mathematical revolution going on at the time was, uh, you know, a product of the Renaissance and all these mathematicians, Da Vinci. And, and so when I decided the title, the Renaissance of Money, and the, and the insertion point, like you call it in 1252, that's what really, you know, um, kickstarted the book. And then it, the, the title became Layered Money really, um, you know, five to six months into the writing process. Right. So the, the overarching theme or concept just kind of emerged after you started doing research and started writing and stuff like that. Yeah, it was the, the so the, the Florence, book was when you know how I decided when to start uh, the story but the hierarchy concept was the basis of the book and that was a paper I read in November to December of 2019 um, and I read it because I was developing my own curriculum for my course at USC where I teach uh, fixed income and in that fixed income course, I had inherited it and I inherited a curriculum to go along with it that I used for the first semester. But for my you know, second semester, it was my first original curriculum. And I was building a slew of PDFs that the students could just download and they didn't have to buy a thousand page textbook with you know, difficult to understand concepts. And when I found the, the paper, the inherent hierarchy of money these light bulbs went off and I said, this is actually how to explain Bitcoin, let alone our monetary system, which is why I chose the paper for my class. It was to explain the monetary system, but it was also the perfect paper to explain why Bitcoin is going to be the world reserve currency, in my opinion. And the hierarchy concept kickstarted the book, the Florence book, uh, you know, brought about the, the beginning of the story and the working title for the book. Right. Did you have to how much rewriting is involved in writing a book? So this is my first attempt at a book. So uh, the first draft was basically 
um, all the facts, just, you know, everything that I had researched organized into a chronology. I sent it to three very trusted uh, friends slash colleagues. Um, one of them um, being a fixed income only person. One of them being a fixed income person, but a historical and anthropological person. And one of them being a non-finance uh, attorney. And those were the first three readers of the book. And basically all of them said, I love, I love the, the story, but it, it, it doesn't flow at all. It's just a bunch of facts. And so you have to make it, you have to make it nice now go in and, and, and make it nice. So the first rewrite was taking the facts and making it a story. And um, then, and I got a few more uh, people involved at that point. Uh, then my dad and my wife um, really took a, a knife to it. And um, my dad came in and said, you know, he, he's, I said, read it as the layman. My dad is into Bitcoin now because I've been talking about it nonstop for several years. Um, but he, you know, I said, read it as the layman. I want to write this book for the people, not for Bitcoiners. Um, and so he, he said, you lost me a little bit here, here, here. I, I'd like you to focus maybe more on counterparty risk from the get-go and hammer home that point. Um, you know, now he sounds like a, a Bitcoiner uh, when he was giving me the feedback, which was awesome. <laughs> And my wife, who's a non-financial person, she looked at it from an artistry standpoint, a word choice standpoint. So, you know, my, my dad's edits um, were a rewrite of, again, the story. And I actually had to uh, really rewrite the, the whole Federal Reserve part to set up. Um, the European stuff was pretty good. Everybody liked it. Uh, the USA stuff needed to be redone because it didn't set up the Bitcoin and the future stuff well enough. Um, and then my wife was the one who um, just really tried to make it uh, uh, more um, poetic, more beautiful, um, to read better and um, thinking with uh, Guy Swan's voice in both of our ears, like what would it sound like when we're reading it out loud? We read it out loud to each other, you know, a bunch for the last month. So that that process um, was like really a word choice and a sentence, you know, kind of making the artistry. And that was really the final stage. And I didn't even, you know, I never thought about that part of it when I at the, at the beginning because I'm focused on the research and, and then developing the story. But um, all in all, I think about five major drafts. Um, and uh, about eight months in total of from from the first word to uh, typesetting. How satisfying was it when it finally published in print, like the ones that are behind you? What was that like to hold the actual physical copy? Yeah, um, I actually, I actually got the thrill um, way before getting you know the copy in my hands which was seeing, just seeing the ebook, um, that was enough for me because I, I read, I, I actually switched to 100% ebooks for this so that I could read l late into the night, um, you know, with no lights on in the room. And mm -hmm. um, 
and so seeing the ebook was just incredibly satisfying but really actually the satis the satisfaction really started to kick in um in the in the one week before it went to typesetting because i knew at that point that the book was good i could tell the book was good the um you know my wife and my dad both um were not going to mince words and uh you know just make me feel uh, good about writing a book we all listen it wasn't only that we wanted it to be great but our lives actually depended on it being great and that's what that's why it was such a family effort at the end and uh uh you know we we had to we had to make sure that it was palatable uh for the world and and that um so the point of satisfaction really kicked in in those last few days when I when I read it back to myself and read it out loud and I knew it was going to go to print um, a great product. Right. Last uh, last question about the writing, <clears throat> but what was your like? How did you go about writing it? Right. Mm -hmm. what, what was the process? What was the you know how much time did you block off? What did you do when you know the insights were just weren't flowing? Like what was that aspect of the the process like? Yeah, um, you know, I have a three-year-old at, at home, and um, so, uh, and you know, it's just my wife, my wife and I, and 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 our daughter in the house here, and during the pandemic, so um, it's a lot of teamwork <laughs> in order for me to get quiet time. Um, so, three-hour blocks, uh, one in the morning um, when I'm fresh, uh, ready to go, a couple, couple, you know you know, just morning routine things and then get right into a three hour block of writing. Um, and then maybe an afternoon block in the first in the first few months. Um, and that's how I kickstarted the book, got it going. Then when I got into when I finished uh, like the first draft of the story, uh, that was in about September of, of uh, 2020. When I finished the story, then I went into the, the morning block, probably an afternoon block, but then the key was uh, all lights off in the house, both girls asleep, and 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, essentially every night for about three months until this thing was done. Right. And yeah, writing and writing. And um, so I, um, at that point, I wasn't even doing the afternoon blocks because I, you know, I maybe needed a, a quick nap or, or something like that. But the late night, the 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. window, and I didn't get to 2 a.m. every night. Sometimes it was only to midnight. But that that is, it's actually the time that I wrote the time value Bitcoin, the Bitcoin risk spectrum, all that stuff. My daughter was extremely young at that point. And so the night was the only time where there was quiet and I was working um, 5.30 to 3, 5.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the desk, you know, an hour away from my house as well at that time. So I got used to writing late at night during 2018 and 2019. And um, in the last three months of that stretch, um, it was it was that late night uh, session every night, um, just with the with the drive that uh, you know, the, my life depends on this. My family is depending on this product and it has to be great. There's no, there's nothing, there's no, you know, um, there's no other way to do it and, and, uh, except for giving it my all. 
So sometimes coffee, sometimes iced tea, um, sometimes it's just adrenaline. And uh, that was, you know, that's, that was how it went for the last three months. That's how we got it out. And did you, this is actually the last question, I hope on, on the writing, but did you bump up against much frustration throughout the writing process? You know, you've got the pressure of this being a very important project, as you just said, timelines, uh, wanting to do it justice, wanting to make sure you can actually articulate what you're trying to articulate, because that space in between your mind and the page can be a pretty wide gulf sometimes, right? So did you encounter like any, any times where you thought like, man, I, this is just too hard or anything like that? No, never that it was too hard, but during the European history research process and the writing process in the first few months of the book, um, frustrations in terms of how do I get this story from the year 1252 to the year 2009. Right. And, uh, and that, um, and really it was not even that, it was like getting to the year 1900 and um, getting to the Federal Reserve in 1913. How do I get there from, from 1252? So the Antwerp, Amsterdam, London portion of the research and the writing, because it was all brand new to me. I mean, the history was all brand new. So I literally read this um, Amsterdam, London, Antwerp one paper that's in one of my references. I literally read it like 16 times. Uh, that, and that was frustrating, right? Right. Because because th that means that after the twelfth time, I still I know that it's important, but I still can't figure out how to phrase it, how to make the story go. And so, but but towards the end, it's just a challenge and a jigsaw puzzle, and um, a you know a fight to the finish. And I'm a competitor by nature, so I love to compete. And so in the end, it was it was all about uh, competing and trying to win. And I have a a trusted friend that you know I. I, he's like my sports psychologist, but, you know, it's just like a performance coach, uh, you know, people to help you get that winning mentality and, and try to get there. And so toward the end, there was no frustration, um, no blocks. It was all just drive. Nice. Nice. Um, yeah. So you, you were mentioning kind of like how to tell the story and how to, how to move from one period to the next where lots happens in between, in between. And, uh, you know, this book could have been a thousand pages, right? Because so much history occurs, relevant history occurs in the times of, of the book. And I know two, two things that I thought were interesting about this book. One was, I think Bitcoiners are starting, you know, they, through all their study, probably have an appreciation for layered money, even if they didn't articulate it that way. And more importantly, the 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 vulnerabilities that layered money creates right in each layer of the stack but i think a lot of you know quote unquote normies probably didn't see money or the financial system in that way and i think that's actually a critical piece to understanding why bitcoin is important and relevant because if you start to see that a layered money system is predicated on trust and vulnerability at each layer of the stack and if you can make a case or if it's proven or shown that those what whichever layers are compromised in some way, it, as I suspect we would both say they are, um, then that makes it a lot the, the value proposition of understanding or understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin becomes a lot easier. Um, and so I think I, I, this is probably going to be a good book to gift to a lot of normies just to, to show them that this is the structure um, that, my, that the financial systems 
that, that this is a structure uh, of the existing financial systems and why a different structure predicated on Bitcoin would be more favorable or more preferable to, to what's going on now. Can you, you know, has that been your experience? Like when you've had people reach out to you who have read the book, uh, do they kind of say the same thing? Yeah. And I wrote it for those people. I wrote it for Bitcoiners to give to everybody else. I mean, I love the Bitcoin community. Uh, this is, this is our community. This is, um, what brought me into this, this new path in my life. Um, but I did write the book for the world. I didn't write it for Bitcoiners because I knew Bitcoiners already knew this. Um, they've read my writing before. Um, they're the ones that encouraged me to pursue more writing about this. So I wrote it for thinking about um, my industry, specifically people in my industry who, you know, they, they might have all the financial lingo in the world but can't articulate why Bitcoin is relevant. And so I wanted to lay it out for them. And my experience is that people on Wall Street, um, friends that are at these big major investment banks, uh, either on the research side or on the sales and trading side have all said to me, this is a great history. I didn't know a lot of the history and Bitcoin now makes a lot more sense to me full stop and, you know, mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. And so they're recommending it to people. And that's, that's when I knew that the book was um, written the right way is that, you know, non-Bitcoiners are reading it and saying, oh, I get Bitcoin now. And this is something that I would recommend for you to read also. And um, I've gotten a lot of support from, you know, people on Wall Street and in my industry and, uh, I appreciate all of their um, recommendations and and posts on Twitter. And yeah, LinkedIn. I think I think for a lot of those types of people, they may have been receptive to Bitcoin, but I think it moves it from the category of just an asset or an investment to actually a new financial system, and that's a pretty big realization for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, about the layered money, you know, the process of of layered money systems emerging. For, can you just speak a little bit to your, you know, your opinion or your insights as to why they emerge in that way? You know, so ostensibly prior to the period in Florence that you, uh, that you started with, money was like a bearer asset instrument that was just passed from one person to the next, right? And then at this time, it developed other layers. Can you articulate like the motivations or the incentives or the reasons why those systems developed into greater complexity? Yeah, so I actually, um, I'll nitpick what you just said a little bit. I actually think that this idea of credit and keeping tabs with each other um, is just as old as the bearer asset idea of money mm -hmm. and was just as prevalent in all corners of the world. Um, I've gotten a little bit of critique for being too Western focused in my exploration but it's not that I focused on Western money only. It's that the system that we have today emerged out of Florence, essentially, during that era. But, you know, China, in China, and this is, you know, you were asking about the, the book being a little short. I actually had a whole thing written about um, the 10th century in China and fiat money, paper money during that era. 
but took it out because I couldn't work it into the story of, of Europe and, and all that. So there's so many examples of credit money systems and fiat money systems around the world prior to Europe and the layered money story that I tell that starts in the 13th century. But I just think it was a confluence of math, accounting, the foreign stability, and you know, increased communication, the printing press, uh, and just the whole Renaissance in general that that had a, a, la a layered money system emerge out of the florin. It was the florin plus the accounting revolution that you know started with Fibonacci bringing accounting techniques from the Middle East and North Africa, from the bazaars into you know across the Mediterranean, and. So it's just it was just a, a a brilliance of confluence at in that in the Renaissance in Italy um, and throughout Europe that that led to the system. I don't think that it was any grand transition from coin money to credit money. Um, just just more a, a confluence, right? And is it fair to say that these? systems emerge because we have a a drive well we have a, a drive to trade more right to in, improve our own situ uh, situation um, and those systems are predicated on our ability to uh, transact with speed and trust those two primary variables and if if the technologies available at the time permit us to extend the domain of trust and perhaps the strength of trust, as well as the speed at which we do so. That's kind of why we see these emerge. That's precisely it. It's it's um, it's speed. It's trust. The trust allows borrowing. I'll pay you back in the future. I you know I have a tab with you. It's so actually inherent to uh, human anthropology. I think, and um, you know, one big critique that I have of that money should be gold. It should be a physical item only. It shouldn't be a credit system. That ignores the fact that, you know, if I if I don't have anything on me and I'm with a friend, I'm, you know, like, hey, I'll pay you back. It's so natural for us to do that. It it helps efficiency, it helps speed, um, but it's just part of what we do. And you think about businesses in the olden days that are, you know, buying and selling raw materials from each other. If you're a textile manufacturer, you know, the the guy that's gonna make the clothes needs a little float of fabric, you know, and then he can only pay you back once he sells the clothes. And so you got to give him a little bit of time and he'll give you back a little juice. It's just inherent in the way that humans should do business with each other. And that does not require a, a physical bearer asset until settlement. And even the settlement can be in any way that you choose. If I choose a different, if I don't want gold, but I want something else, or even if I just want an extension of credit, that's my right to, to wish for that. And so people did always demand gold and silver physical coins for final settlement. That is also inherent for humans to want to store wealth in a physical items that they hold in their pocket or their house so that nobody can take it away from them. That's a first layer money. That's a counterparty free money. So credit is inherent in our anthropology. So is a bearer asset. Um, and so we need both 
um, and both are money, uh, you know, depending on how you define it, and both make an economic system work. And that's what we have as as human beings, we have an economic system because we do business with each other. Right. And it seems like in our attempts to foster faster, broader trade and exchange, sometimes these systems move beyond their carrying capacity, let's say. And what one of the things I found interesting about the book is that I didn't sense much judgment. You know, so many of us are critical of the Federal Reserve, the move to exclusively fiat money, the manipulation of interest rates, all that kind of stuff. But you seemed very objective in just saying, these are this is why and how these layered systems emerge. This is what was, this is what is now, and this is what's coming in the future with Bitcoin, absent any of you know the judgments as to why potentially those layered systems break down. But yeah, maybe you can speak on that a little bit because I think it's relevant for uh, yeah. how, how robust these layered systems can be. Yeah, well, I've you know I've read a lot of. Um, critiques of the Fed and, um, you know, even part of my research process and intellectual curiosity was how is this QE thing even possible? How does it make sense that QE is a thing? They just create money out of nowhere. How does it work? Is it really printing money? Um, you know, it's not printing money. There's no printing involved in QE. And um, so all of that process you know, led me to critiquing the Fed is not going to get me anywhere. Um, and I'm going to lose readers just coming out and critiquing the Fed. The critiques of the Fed have been written. The history of the Fed has been written. Um, the perceived inequity and unfairness of QE has been covered. I don't need to go out and say that I believe QE leads to income inequality and therefore we should all Bitcoin. It's been said before. Uh, you know, I'm going to lose a lot of readers if I do that. Um, people can read it for what they, you know, want. I, you know, the Fed is doing what it is. Somebody, can, <laughs> you know, I just signed a foreign translation deal in China. It's a really big deal. I'm very excited about partnering right. with the social sciences, academic press in Beijing. Somebody nice. comes out and says, oh, you know, you're not, you didn't do an anti-China thing. What, you're okay with the Muslim uh, weaker, you know, internment camps and stuff. I'm like, come on. No, I am not okay with that. But I'm not writing a political critique here, nor am I writing a, a central banking critique. You know, I have my own opinions, monetary policy, political and geopolitical. I have a lot of opinions. I could, you know, I could have filled up my, the book with opinions, but uh, that wasn't the goal. It wasn't the goal to try to uh, push my opinions on people. It was my goal to tell a story of money in a way that sets up why Bitcoin is already achieving the market value. It's not even like, let's predict that Bitcoin is going to be the world reserve currency. Hello. 100 million people own it and it's above a trillion in market cap and uh, exhibiting a, an exponential parabolic advance that's sustaining over a decade despite 80% um, sell-offs, it's like right in front of you. So the price is the truth. I always say this. And um, so this book is like, you look at the price, you need the truth. I'll tell you a story about it. Right. Nice. I like that. 
Um, and maybe this might be a good segue into the type of financial system uh, that a, a layered money Bitcoin system will create. But what is it that uh, causes layered money systems to break break down or at least weaken if we want to make the case that they never completely fail or they don't always completely fail? It's, um, it's actually a very basic and uh, re repeated story and it's, it's expansion beyond the, uh, what the system will allow from an elastic standpoint. I give the, I, you know, the analogy of, or the metaphor of a rubber band. A rubber band can only stretch so much until it breaks. It does have elasticity, so it can expand, but it can only expand to a certain point and it breaks. And we can call that several things. We can call it leverage. We can call it um, irrational exuberance. We can call it boom and bust. We can call it a credit cycle. Uh, there's several names for it, but it's basically that um, when a system is elastic, there are levers of elasticity. And who has the levers of elasticity in their hands? It's central bankers and bankers, right? Um, and let's take a look at 2007 and the, the decade preceding it. That elasticity was just uh, an unlimited underwriting of credit default and interest rate swaps against um, various credit instruments that swelled, you know, to almost one quadrillion in notional of derivatives. Now, the number one quadrillion is a little dramatic because the market value was actually, um, you know, just in the tens of trillions at that time of derivatives outstanding. But even tens of trillions of market value of derivatives have that elasticity was not um, necessarily sanctioned by the system. And it kind of snuck into the system in a way that nobody actually knew how much the system was being stretched at all. So when it snapped, you know, the whole thing um, would have collapsed absent central bank liquidity because you can just think about central bank liquidity as hold on elasticity rubber band don't snap don't snap on me i'll come and i'll put some more rubber in there so that you know you can keep the extension that you've done without you know snapping or tearing the system so um you know to answer your question it's like it's just uh, it's just boom and bust it's just credit cycles and if there's no hard and fast regulator on everything there's no way that you can really stop it and so that's why we have in the United States, we have like strict domestic banking leverage ratios now that account and, and, and even improved accounting techniques that don't allow for that type of elasticity to sneak into the system. But again, uh, in a regulatory arbitrage sort of way, people always find their way around the rules to stretch elasticity back out. Um, and, and it, it's not something you can ever stop. And that's why people seek safety. They seek the least counterparty risk they can find when they understand the elasticity component. So in my world, if you don't understand that, you're not gonna be, you, you don't own enough treasuries. Basically, you just think that all the credit that you own, you're gonna outperform your index because you own more credit. Well, when things go bad and you don't own treasuries, guess what, you're gonna vastly underperform because 
you misunderstood the elasticity in the system. And so if you are a Bitcoiner today, odds are that you have pointed out an elasticity that you don't see as sustainable. Therefore, you gravitate toward a money that has no counterparty risk so that when elasticity snaps and credit systems break, you're not exposed to it uh, or you've hedged your exposure. That's why people call Bitcoin a hedge because it's actually a hedge against observing outward. And uh, when you observe what's happening and actually properly comprehend the system, there's almost no way to, um, there's almost no way to not own some sort of non-counterparty asset. And I'm, I'll give a break to people that don't own Bitcoin as long as they own gold or real estate as that hedge, they're properly understanding why they should do that, because um, you're looking at the dollar system in a in a in a critical and a fragile sort of way. Right, <clears throat> and I guess once you enter into the territory of non-counterparty risk, then you compare things against each other based on liquidity and growth and adoption and all that kind of stuff that will affect the asset itself. But I mean, we talk about this in the Bitcoin space all the time, but the problem is trust, right? That's why you, that's the counterparty risk is that you're trusting the counterparty to do what they say they're doing, to do things that are in the interest of you, or at least insofar as they promise them to you. And that seems to be why all this elasticity emerges in these layered money systems, because ultimately, <clears throat> excuse me, that trust is broken or stretched or, you know, that kind of stuff happens. And regardless of the regulations, that you impose on top of it, it'll sneak in because that door is always open, right? And, and it seems to yeah. just be human nature that people in a position to take advantage of that will do so. And that'll put so much pressure on these layered money systems that ultimately the trust breaks. And then, you know, the kind of house of cards has to come down around it because the whole thing is predicated on trust. And, you know, such is, is one of the reasons why there's so much enthusiasm for Bitcoin. But before we move into the, the Bitcoin uh, domain with that don't you think it's it's funny or just an interesting component of our human nature and history that you know money is supposed to be something that mediates between the resources of the earth and the capabilities and potential and resources of of the individual right their time and their ability to deploy their their energy and somehow, just as a result of that seemingly basic relationship, this universe of complexity, especially in our day and age today, of these financial products and derivative markets and all this kind of stuff has emerged. And it doesn't seem like it any longer, because all of that stuff is supposed to have a string tethering back down to value created as a result of human ingenuity and the Earth's resources, right? It's pretty much... It all has to trail back to there, but it certainly doesn't seem like that. It seems like we've become so financialized as a result of uh, the level of trust in the system and the, and the abuse of that trust that, um, you know, a serious unwind is necessary to bring us back to being more grounded in quote unquote reality, let's say. Yeah. And there's a couple things there. Um, there's something about the dollar and there's something about equities that I want to address. Sure. First about the dollar. What we're talking about is, you know, bringing it back to the labor that you put in, right? The ingenuity that you put in. 
Well, the dollar is so ephemeral and fleeting at this point as even a unit um, because of, you know, honestly, a complete bastardization of the unit over the last 50 years. It went from something that was exchangeable for gold relatively easily, you know, speaking, to something so fleeting in nature that um, if you even have half a million dollars, there's no way to store it in an insured way um, without taking, you know, an insane amount of counterparty risk to some entity um, if it's not the United States government. And that's why treasuries are the risk-free asset of the world. It's for this reason. And so understanding actually being on a treasury's desk and finally understanding the demand for treasuries was the fact that the dollar is ephemeral was game, a game changer for me. Um, it was like, wow, people don't even care what the unit, they don't even want the unit. They need something and that something is treasuries because it's the only instrument that maintains the unit itself. And so that drives an investment thesis to want to own treasuries right, relative to other assets. And that's why rates have trended lower over the last 40 years, in my opinion, right? Um, they've been a great asset to own. You've made a ton of money being long, um, long, long dated treasuries uh, over the last few decades. Um, but it also speaks to why stocks keep going up because stocks represent an ownership in that ingenuity. They don't represent any bias toward the dollar unit um, because the, every balance sheet in the United States in the S&P 500 could switch tomorrow to Bitcoin and all the equity owners would be neutral to it as long as that's what the um, economic activity was in. And um, they could go and sell, they don't have to sell their shares for dollars, they could go sell it for Bitcoin today because it represents an asset and ownership. And so that's the point here is that people want something and that wanting something drives people into equities. Um, it makes them want to own equities instead of bank deposits. Because if you weigh the two, you're like, one doesn't represent anything. It's just a, it's just a pile of counterparty risk. Whereas the other is um, interest in, in, in human ingenuity hmm. and product development and economic activity. And so, you know, Bitcoiners are looking at equities and they're looking at cat, you know, dollar deposits and they're making a decision where they're uh, choosing Bitcoin over stocks, in my opinion. Um, but nobody's choosing Bitcoin over, you know, like treasuries yet. And because those treasury people are um, still stuck in the dollar mindset that that's their unit. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but <laughs> uh, well, let's let's talk about that because this is one of the I think aha moments for people that read the book. It's also one of the primary criticisms of people in the legacy financial system that, hey, Bitcoin is just a you know disinflationary bearer asset. You know this is not going to replace such a complex financial system as we have today with treasury bonds and all and all the derivatives and that kind of stuff. And this book in conjunction with some of your writing around the Lightning Network um, is starting to elucidate some clarity about how 
in fact, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is fostering a layered money system and how you will, as a result of that, see many of the different um, positive attributes of previous layered money systems that have worked in fostering an, a, a financial system, but without the critical flaws uh, in a, inherent in the trust model of those systems. So, uh, and I, I love the, the writing you've done on how an interest rate or risk-free rate is emerging as a result of lightning and how that'll have massive implications for, you know, bond markets and stuff like that. And I, I brought up, you brought up Jim earlier and one of his critiques of Bitcoin, and I think generally they're fairly ill-considered, but uh, one of them is that it, it doesn't have a bond market, therefore it can never be a reserve currency. And I think what you've written about is starting to show that it in fact can and most likely will have a bond market because what you'll have is no counterparty risk. You can maintain custody and still derive uh, a risk-free rate or a yield. And so I'd love to hear you expand on what you see as Bitcoin as a layered money system. So Bitcoin actually already is a bond market um, because we have, you know, now multi-year old products that are uh, represent overnight lending and overnight interest rates. So the front end of the Bitcoin yield curve is already well established. It, it, it take, it's going to take volume. Um, so in terms of, you know, a more transparent, maybe in the Lightning Network, absolutely. But outside in terms of the exchange lending, it's just the same. It's just 100% counterparty exposure um, in that sort of situation. And that's okay because uh, interest can be made. Um, interest is being accrued on top of Bitcoin in Bitcoin terms in various counterparty um, arrangements and has been like that for a long time. So Bitcoin bond markets already exist. We call bonds, 30 year bonds in the treasury world. We call things that are medium term like tens, we call them notes and we call the short stuff bills. So the, let's, let's say the Bitcoin bill market already exists. Their bullet structures, their um, you know, overnight lending where, and I, by bullet, I mean, you lend the money out and you get all the money back in the bullet at the end. And that's a bond market. So it's, it already exists. It's just um, at the beginning, still at the beginning stages because Bitcoin itself is young. The power of the Lightning Network is that the bullet structure continues but in a less or non-counterparty sort of way where you can actually engage in a bullet structure where you lend money out and get money back in a bullet and accrue interest and that whole process never give up the counterparty risk um, you do have like exposure to opening and closing channels and other nuanced factors but that was the origin of my research that the lightning network itself represents uh, an overnight interest rate market for Bitcoin that doesn't have any counterparty so that it can serve as a reference rate to the rest of the exchange lending that is already happening. And that we want, we don't need to quote BitMEX rates in, in terms of their nominal rate, but we just say it's lightning plus, you know, lightning plus 2%, you can get lightning plus this and that. And lightning is not, that doesn't mean there's one lightning rate. But my idea was that if people are accruing interest on the Lightning Network, they can, uh, you know, share those, share that data with each other, and we can observe a neutral average uh, accrual that you know people can offer. And there will be Lightning-based banks, and this stuff is already starting to happen with Lightning Labs and other developments that it's actually managed for you to a certain extent 
where there's just a market for liquidity. As long as you have the liquidity, there are systems that will execute the accrual of interest to you in Bitcoin counterparty free. Incredible. Yeah. And so that didn't exist when I wrote the time value Bitcoin in 2018 or came up with the Lightning Network reference rate, but it exists now. So um, we're already well on our way to a Bitcoin bond market. Um, and listen, it's only a matter of time until sovereigns or corporations start taking loans out in Bitcoin and repaying in Bitcoin. That sort of stuff is already happening in the private markets. So this whole idea that Bitcoin doesn't have a bond market is maybe just blinders on. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy how quickly things are developing and then how those developments just expand your idea of what and this thing can and will be in the future. You know, I mean, based purely off what you just said, you could easily imagine a time in the not too distant future where you could put however much your stack, you, you know, you, you could get yield by maintaining custody, but, you know, putting it out as liquidity on the Lightning Network. And yeah, yeah boom, absolutely. you know, you got a risk-free rate of return. And, you know, that's why it's not, um, you know, there yet because it doesn't have an unlimited pool of, you know, if you just stuff, um, you know, a hundred thousand Bitcoin into the Lightning Network, you're not going to accrue anything on the vast majority of that, and your interest rate will actually be so minuscule that um, the opening of the original channel won't even account for um, your interest rate accrual. So it's right. not a, an unlimited, um, you know, uh, bond market in terms of nominal size, and all of that is in the future are underway and you know so it opens up the critique that oh bitcoin doesn't have a bond market well it just has a really young bond market right you know it's 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 so interesting to see that this progression is taking place and if we relate it back to what we've been discussing i feel like the fact that a true risk-free rate will exist because you know as, as you said uh, in your writing you know the treasury bonds aren't really a risk-free rate. Your counterparty is the U.S. government, right? Your counterparty risk is the U.S. government. Um, how much discipline will that put on the off-chain lending markets, let's say, as, as you articulated, the ones that offer six, eight, 10, whatever it is, annual percent, uh, annual yield right now. You've got to think that at least that will be some sort of a governor on the you know X main chain lending markets or X, X Bitcoin network lending markets, because previously, as we look at layered money in the past, there was no real, there was no, no counterparty risk discipline, right? The least counterparty risk was the discipline, but you still had counterparty risk. So it'd be interesting to see even in those markets that are, you know, off chain, how they will be disciplined by the fact that an emerging genuine no counterparty risk, risk-free rate is available. Absolutely. And it will, um, you know, it brings about the idea of proof of reserves and, um, uh, you know, leverage and all these concepts that um, are, let's say the proof of reserves is native to Bitcoin. Um, leverage is just native to finance. And so in Bitcoin, these two concepts merge and uh, the Lightning Network should act as a governor of interest rates that have more counterparty risk than it. That's the, that's the basis of the financial theory there. And once the Lightning Network does have enough size that it, it can serve as that function, 
there shouldn't be any private entity that offers a lower interest rate than what you can make risk-free in the Lightning Network. Um, mm -hmm. And um, But we don't know that. We can only empirically observe what the rates are in the market. Um, it's a project that uh, I'd love you know, to see develop and it's just an overall interest rate dashboard for Bitcoin. Uh, let's really treat it like a bond market, a bill market. It is one, um, you know, I stared at a Bloomberg screen for several years and I know, you know, that, you know, I have, you know, 108 different interest rates on one screen at the same time so that I can assess relative value between different parts of the curve and different counterparties. Well, you know, that sort of thing um, needs to happen in Bitcoin for it to develop the, re uh, the reputation as a bond market. So, um, you know, maybe we'll see it on Bloomberg in a couple of years. Maybe we'll see it on Clark Moody tomorrow. Maybe we'll see it, you know, somewhere else on Twitter uh, after this, uh, after people watch this episode. But, you know, we need a dashboard. We need uh, a place for interest rates to all live next to each other, just from an, just from an uh, observatory standpoint, so that we can assess relative value, we can actually exercise discipline. How do you exercise discipline if you're not even looking at everything on the same screen? Um, and there's no aggregator of the data. And so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen a great Bitcoin interest rate aggregator yet. Um, but we'll get there and we'll get there soon. And I'm sure people are already working on it. Um, I'm sh and I'm actually, I know for a fact that from a private standpoint, people already have them, right? Um, if you're a, a Bitcoin hedge fund or you're some sort of uh, investment shop that is already long Bitcoin, you have your own dashboards, you have your own feeds, you actually have your own counterparty arrangements where you're accruing Bitcoin on your Bitcoin already. Um, exchange lending has, uh, you know, so many different currencies and um, cross pairs and exchanges that you can lend out your Bitcoin and make interest on already. So we'll see that develop soon. Yeah, it's it's one of the most exciting developments in my mind. I think a lot of, again, a lot of Bitcoiners will be familiar with this stuff, but, but I think most normie people are not in, in just how significant it is that the interest rate is manipulated. You know, because the interest rate is supposed to be a synthesis of the capital stock, and the preferences of the people who might either save or use that capital, right? And those two things come together. And as you say, aggregated across all scales and markets to come to, or uh, you could come to an interest, like a main interest rate, right? And that's supposed to dictate how much and what kind of value you extract from what we were talking about earlier, which is the earth's resources and human ingenuity and work you know, that interest rate is basically pulling those things out and it's determining based on the capital that's been accumulated and the preferences and desires of people, how much and how quickly and in what way to pull those things out. And then all those solutions get, you know, uh, sent out into the market through entrepreneurship and, and, and work. And then the market decides which ones were useful and valuable uses of those resources and which were not, and the process continues, right? And that's supposed to be how these things work. And the fact that we've lived for so long in an environment where interest rates are arbitrarily determined rather than determined by capital stock and market forces, I, th I think has had so many deleterious effects on 
society, but also the world, right? Because the carrying capacity of the world is being mediated by a central group of people that's, that's basically incentivizing people to consume that world when perhaps the capital stock and the preferences of people would dictate that that world gets consumed less, you know? And I think you can make a strong case that a long-term low interest rate policy fosters the, the consumption of resources potentially faster than we might see in a more organic or natural rate of interest. And so the fact that Bitcoin um, is or emerging on top of Bitcoin is a true free market interest rate. And that should we, and I, th I think it's both of our positions that in the future, we will have a Bitcoin reserve dominate, you know, Bitcoin standard dominating the world, that the, that communication of preferences <clears throat> and how it addresses or uses the capital stock of both savings and the resources of the world will be so much higher fidelity, so much pure, right? It'll be so much a greater reflection of the genuine synthesis of those, those forces rather than by fiat of central planning that just wants to make sure that debt is easier to pay or that people continue to consume for arbitrary economic and, and political reasons. You know, And that's what excites me about this. And that's what excites me about a real interest rate. I mean, it's it's so important to have a genuine real interest rate and not something that's manipulated by a small group of people. It's, it has enormous implications all across the board. And it's a great way to phrase it when you're using this term capital stock, because you know then the way to describe it is that the reason the interest rate is manipulated is because the capital stock itself is has a unit that is completely fleeting and nobody wants it over the long term. So how can it be considered stock? Stock means it's there, right? It's either in stock or not in stock. Right. And so the Bitcoin stock is has an unprecedented measurability to it. And the dollar, it has continued to exhibit a lack of measurability. That's why I call it fleeting, because you can't even identify what is a dollar. That's why nobody wants them. That's why stocks go up because uh, that's the outlet for people that want and, uh, you know, to preserve their capital stock and to transfer money from today to tomorrow. They can't do it in dollars. They have to own something else. And so with Bitcoin, we no longer have to uh, flee the unit, the unit itself is a very satisfactory capital stock because of its measurability. And so it all comes back to run the numbers. The supply is observable, fully observable. And so we need to uh, continue to hammer home this you know, scarcity uh, feature of Bitcoin and you know, why uh, a natural interest rate exists because the stock is um, completely measurable. Yeah, great point. And I think another important point there is that the stock is market derived, right? That's really, really important because it's the only way to ensure that it's, it's in line with the market resources and the market preferences used to both create it and, tra and transact in it. Whereas, as you say, the fleeting dollar, if it can be created by dictate, then that throws off you know, everything downstream of it. Um, what two questions, what do you think 
how do you think the existing layered money system gets unwound? Uh, and what kind of you know, visions or images do you have of a layered money system predicated on Bitcoin? And you can, you can take that uh, financially, you can take that socioculturally. I'd just love to hear, because you know, as you study money systems throughout the last several thousand years, it's unavoidable to see the cultures that emerge around different money systems, you know, whether how much, how prosperous, how peaceful, how uh, culturally rich they are, art, music, that kind of stuff. So what, what do you see as, uh, you know, po the possibilities around a layered money system predicated on something like Bitcoin? So I don't see the current layered money system necessarily unwinding. Um, what I see is a shift in balance sheet denomination. Um, that's how Bitcoin takes over uh, going into the future, where, you know, today we have corporations saying, oh, we're going to buy a billion worth of Bitcoin. But, you know, in the future, they're going to be like, we're switching our denomination to Bitcoin. You know, full stop. Or we're, we're done with dollars. We're not going to measure anything in dollars anymore. And that that is how I see Bitcoin taking over, is that, you know, companies family offices, investment managers, and eventually countries um, switch the denom of uh, their work, their labor, their time, and um, their profits and losses. So and things just morph into the Bitcoin system in that kind of a way? That's how I see it. It's a, it's a, it's a morphing over the long term as slowly just people say, I'm done measuring in this and I'd rather measure it in this because um, it's just a shift in, in uh, name, really. And yeah. can the complexity that we are, t you know, that we described in the existing system handle a morph like that? Or does it, you know, does it necessarily have to experience some kind of a, of a collapse if, if that takes place? No, I don't think it's gonna take a collapse because I think that the, the process has already started um, and it's just a product of the fragility of the system, not of a system collapse. And, you know, I do see the Fed, um, you know, just being the lender of only resort in the system and will continue to do so and continue to sustain the dollar unit for as long as they can. And um, people that are continuing to name their savings and earnings in dollars, um, into the future will be more and more subject to the Fed preventing systemic collapse. And that drives people into Bitcoin. I think the reason why I think that um, it's not a systemic collapse that causes it, but more just a gradual morphing is because it's happening in front of our eyes. Um, and we all, we, you know, it is, it is still very early. It doesn't just happen. Bitcoin can achieve uh, a million dollar price far before people even start to consider re-denominating. Um, so it's just very early uh, in this whole process. And But the fact that we're already at, you know, uh, potentially a hundred million people around the world that are shifting their mental denomination, is just a matter of time. I think of it like internet adoption, um, you know, like email adoption. Like I'm just gonna use email instead of mail um, now billions do it at the beginning. There were five people that did it. So it just takes time. And what about your 
speculation or, or visions of a Bitcoin denominated layered money system and world? You know, yeah. what, are, what are some of the, the major things you see being different in, in the, a culture like that? The Well, from a financial standpoint and a monetary standpoint, the major thing that I see is uh, an actual transparent, liquid and counterparty free exchange between Bitcoin and central bank digital currencies. So a true price discovery of exchange rates. Whereas, you know, today we have a, uh, a largely governed or manipulated exchange rate regime based on central banking activity, foreign exchange swaps and, and things of that nature. So in a, in a digital, a pure digital currency world, I see a pure price discovery of foreign exchange. That's one thing. And then, you know, culturally speaking, um, it, it's, it, it is very exciting to think that, um, interest rates will be more based in reality, um, that risk will be, um, it'll be measured in a way that I think everybody feels more equity around. Right now we have a system in which the Federal Reserve has rates at zero, but who has access to zero interest rate policy? Only those closest to the money spigot. And so Bitcoin shakes up this distance to the money spigot idea and completely shatters it. So I'm optimistic about Bitcoin because I think that it can bring about more uh, equality and more fairness to our planet. And, you know, that's my idealism speaking, but I think that is a huge part of what I believe. And I do genuinely believe that um, Bitcoiners believe that and want Bitcoin to succeed because of that. And um, this critique that like Bitcoiners are just, uh, you know, spewing social justice because they, you know, are making money when the price goes up and want to justify it. I think it's hogwash. I mean, go, you know, go read the papers that we wrote in high school and tell us if we were not, you know, uh, humanitarian forward type of people, you know, it's just, it's a, a little ridiculous. So, um, you know, I, I believe in humanity. I think Bitcoin is a, a good force for the world. Amen, brother. Um, last two questions. You brought up central bank digital currencies. In a layered money system, you know, on top of Bitcoin, how, how do they compete? You know, I know the government can impose all sorts of different things on them that might give, you know, make them necessary for people. But when opting into Bitcoin is increasingly easy and it's, you know, it's it basically pervasive, it's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. What, what, what would be the value proposition or why would they coexist? Why would Bitcoin not just outcompete out of the market any attempt at a central bank digital currency? It can, it can in the future. John, but it's not gonna go right there. You're still gonna have, you know, decades potentially of people that haven't shifted their denomination yet. So they, let's say, work for the government. They get their paycheck in central bank digital currency. Their bills can be paid in central bank digital currency and their taxes can be paid. Their benefits uh, get uh, sent to them in central bank digital currency. They can still buy food with it. So. Um, you know, it's not going to happen overnight where Bitcoin just outcompetes those central bank digital currencies. So I see them coexisting as a way for the central banks of the world to sustain their denomination past the point where they might have failed. Like, um, you know, it brings up this idea that central bank digital currency 
obsoletes the very idea of retail banking at the commercial banking level, potentially. And so maybe that shift has to happen before people realize that the digital currency from the central bank itself is obsolete. So it doesn't just get there right away. I do believe potentially that Bitcoin could replace all currencies in terms of, you know, just out competing, but that's so far into the future that I don't dare speculate about it. I'd rather speculate about um, CBDCs coming, the coexistence and people recognizing the value proposition of Bitcoin relative to existing uh, financial infrastructure. Right. Yeah, I think um, it'll be really interesting to see how all that plays out between the central bank, commercial banks and, and Bitcoin. But I do think once Bitcoin, as it you know, climbs that S curve, I think the narrative of it and the media attention could really get quite you know, crazy. And I feel like if, if these systems of money are interoperable, like if you could easily exchange your salaried CBDC into Bitcoin as soon as you get it, I, I know some people won't because a lot of people just don't pay attention to these matters whatsoever. But I don't know, part of me feels like, you know, I, and I agree with you that it could play out over several decades, but part of me thinks it could play out a lot quicker too. So I guess that's the exciting part of being around to, to watch it actually unfold. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to risk exposure too. Like if your property taxes are due in dollars and, you know, in if you don't pay your property taxes, um, you get your property seized and that's the head, uh, you know, that's the roof over your family's head. It's mm -hmm. a risk. And, and so it just can't happen overnight. Yeah. Um, Nick, this has been really interesting, man. I appreciate the time. Um, what's next for you? Or do you have another book on the horizon articles? Like where's your headspace at these days and what's, what's most interesting to you? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I have contract work that I'm working on for the investment industry and writing and consulting and trying to help onboard uh, institutions to Bitcoin as well. So I'm working on that, on all that, but yeah, I'd love to write another book. And so right now um, I am in the pre uh, research process, the accumulation of the, you know, the new books that will hopefully give me the ideas, but uh, the idea for the next book isn't there yet. It's not, I, I, I couldn't even say that I'm close to it. Um, but this year I'm going to be reading and, uh, we'll see where, where my ideas take me, but yeah, I I'd love to, I'd love to become an author really and, and, and own that. And, um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Was it one of those things where when you did this first one, you realized you could do it, but you also in the process of doing it, realized there were so many other stories to be told or aspects of this thing to dig into? Uh, I was so married to the story that it was really just all about getting this one book out. Um, and, you know, I still don't even consider myself an author yet. Um, but but if I if I put out a second, then it then it's official. Um, <laughs> I think I think once I mentally commit to doing it, then it'll be official. Yeah. Uh, but this was a story that um, I felt that I, I needed to tell. And um, I wanted to do it no matter what happened. Um, I'm proud that I put it out. And uh, we'll see, but I'm, I'm going to keep writing. Uh, I'm going to, I want to write more about the Lightning Network. I want to write more about Bitcoin. Um, and I want to write other stuff too, um, geopolitical stuff and, and, you know, how Bitcoin plays into all of it. So um, you know, send me your ideas. People already are. Send me your reading recommendations and uh, we'll see what unfolds.
Well, dude, I'm very much looking forward to uh, the results of, of the writing that's on your horizon. Um, I know I speak for everyone by saying, you know, we appreciate the book that you did write, you know, a tremendous asset to the, the corpus of work in the space already. And it's so great to see everybody um, being inspired to say, you know, I've got an interesting take. I have an interesting perspective. I want to tell a certain story and actually just commit, you know, making that difficult decision to committing to it and doing it. It's um it's one of the beautiful things to see in this space, how compelled people are just by virtue of what this phenomenon is and what it means to them. So uh, thank you for taking the time to write the book and for having this uh, discussion today. Did you want to um, lead people anywhere if they want to learn more about you or, or read some of your work or anything like that? Sure. And thanks for having me, John. I really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. And thank you for asking the questions about the writing process, because it brings back some uh, really you know, positive moments and um, you know the process is not something that I get to talk about all the time. Uh, people can find me um, at layeredmoney.com. Go check out the book on Amazon. Um, I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. But really, you know, I just want people to check out the book. And if you like it, recommend it. This is a book that could really um, introduce people to Bitcoin in a very palatable way. Nice. Well, man, I'm sure we'll speak again in the future, but until then, you take care of yourself and uh, yeah, have a good one. Thank you. Appreciate it. See you, brother. Let's go. Oh, let's go. 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 Let